0: It's funny, last week I talked about the importance of having a cell phone so you can check the weather to see what the forecast is. But uh, honestly, uh, I get really angry because the weathermen really don't know at times. Uh, Like they say it's going to not snow and then it snows out of nowhere. They say it's not going to rain and it does or... Uh, it's, it's kind of funny that with all of our tools and our skills, we're still trying to get a grasp of our world. Um, well, these meteorologists, you know, I have a science background, and so I can understand the complexity of our world. But these meteorologists kind of stumbled on something that our world is really interconnected. And that sometimes, surprisingly, so a small little thing can have a huge effect. Like we can see a hurricane uh, or, or a tornado somewhere, and don't know where it came from, but there's this one guy, his name is uh, uh, Edward Lawrence. He, he came in the 60s and he, he, he was doing these, these simulations and these models and found that a small change at the beginning could have a huge effect later on. And he kind of popularized this and called this the butterfly effect. Anybody heard about this before? Okay. Uh, mathematicians, they use this in a thing called chaos theory. Basically, I know it's a lot of heady stuff, but he, he, put it, he kind of dumbed it down this way. Can you imagine if a butterfly... Shakes its wings in Brazil, and it sets off a chain reaction of events where it results in a tornado in Texas. Okay, how far-reaching one little butterfly doing this causes a huge, massive tornado, and it's possible. In fact, that's the way the world has been made. There's a strange kind of interconnection that a small, little effect, okay, small act can have a huge consequence. That's what's called the butterfly effect. Uh, it's, it's actually su- something that's pretty, you know, on it's not fuzzy math, it's, it's pretty grounded. It's kind of like another way of saying it, like one little push on a domino and you see it go before you know a huge floor fill has been affected. It is the concept that sometimes we don't pay attention to the small little things, but the small things when it's done with the right force with the right weight behind it, can be incredibly powerful. That there is a power, there is a beauty in the small that often we just don't pay attention to. You know, you don't just have to be a Texan to only think that everything big is good, everything grand, okay? Well, we like huge, we like bigly, we like supersized, we like everything that has mass and, 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 and popularity and things behind it. But when we see how God often moves, when we see how God institutes his plans to do a big thing, to make big changes, to bring life, he often doesn't choose the highborn. He doesn't choose the big, the ones who look like that they have the weight and the mass. He often chooses the small. And in the small, the purity, the the beauty, and the faith of the small can eventually do incredible things because god is working in the midst of and through the small today we are walking through the jesse tree and this is our third sermon in this series we're almost done next sunday we're going to be upstairs at 11 o'clock uh not 11:45, by the way 11 o'clock and we're going to be together with saint paul's and rounding out our whole series but today we're looking at the book of micah because in the book of micah we see god is doing a, a massive restart that his people are a mess But interestingly enough, he references where the restart is going to happen. He references where the ruler is going to come, who's going to turn the tables. And even the superpowers, and I'm going to unpack this, the Assyrians with the superpowers of their day, even the superpowers are going to be turned over, and the small insignificant people are going to be given grandeur and stature, peace and security. And it's going to happen through one who comes through this one town which is so insignificant, this one small little town that nobody would have expected. Because over and over again, we see in the Scriptures, God chooses the small, what the world deems as insignificant, to do grand, significant things. Well, um, I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon from Micah. A lot of people don't preach from Micah. Micah's a tough little book. In fact, I realized, I, looked through my, I haven't preached from Micah except for one verse. Okay? Micah 6, eight. is that verse that everybody loves. Like, oh, you, I have, you know, you've, you've heard from me, mortal man, what, what I require from you. And that is to, you know, love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly before your God. It's, this, it's, the, it's the millennial kind of like catch verse. Everybody loves this verse. But nobody really knows where is that coming from, and nobody really spent a lot of time in understanding the book of Micah. I had to read through the book of Micah and kind of study through the book of Micah a little because this passage, which is the second most favorite verse that most pastors preach from the book of Micah about from out of you this Bethlehem even though you're the smallest of the clans of Judah a great ruler will come this passage is a passage that people preach a lot during Christmas time because it's a prophecy where Christ will be born but there's depth in this passage there's depth in the book of Micah that helps us to understand why would God choose a ruler out of Bethlehem because this is his M.O. This is what he does. He looks at a place where all the strong and the powerful are a mess, and in fact, he chooses to clean it up and heal it through the insignificant. Well, in the book of Micah, you see that there is this strong judgment language being given, not just against the people who are truly corrupt, but especially against the leaders. So in Israel, the three kinds of leaders, when we've got like politicians who are, you know, presidents and congressmen and other kinds of judges, uh, in their setting, their leaders were the prophets, the priests, and the king. The prophets, the priests, and the king. They had different roles. But these are the ways that God would lead and shepherd his people. All three were the kind of shepherd language, especially the king. But in the book of Micah, you see that Micah has harsh words for all three of them. The faithless priests, the prophets who don't speak truth, but they say all nice things so that they can receive money, so they can get popularity. They don't speak the truth. And they don't help the people to understand where God is coming from. And the kings, who are supposed to protect and be powerless, they are not. Powerful, they are not. In fact, five I didn't put it up there, but five one starts this whole passage, this turn with, You know, your kings have been slapped in the face. They've been humiliated. They don't have a place of protection anymore. And it says, uh, basically saying that not only the great leaders, but even the city of Jerusalem, which is supposed to be the high point, the Mecca, the the paragon of virtue. if you want to see what it looks like when God is in charge, you're supposed to go to Jerusalem. It's supposed to be a city of peace. It's supposed to be a city of justice and righteousness. But the prophet in the book of My, uh, Micah says something that, you know, I had to wrestle with for a little while because, like, it was actually hit me kind of strong. He said, in, in, in Micah, I think it's chapter 2, it says, what is the shame of Israel? What's the thing that makes Israel look so bad? And he says, to their surprise, it's Jerusalem. Like, what is the, is the thing that, that is, is the worst about this place it's in fact the place that's supposed to be the best, the, the, the example of virtue and righteousness, it's Jerusalem. So everything's just really, really bad. But when God decides to turn the tables, he doesn't choose somebody out of Jerusalem. He doesn't choose a leader out of New York or L.A. or Chicago or Washington, D.C., these cultural and, and, and political centers. He chooses some poting rural town, in Iowa, out of nowhere, in Idaho, right? That you've never heard of. He chooses a ruler out of Bethlehem. Jerusalem had walls. Jerusalem had the temple. Jerusalem was the high point of thought, of culture, of all of power. It was centered. It was the Mecca in Jerusalem. Bethlehem was a small little rural town. Okay? Hundreds of people at the most. But he says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small or the smallest among the clans of Judah, a great ruler is going to come from you. That word small in the original language is not the word for small. It is a technical term. It is a rare word that basically means better. It means insignificant. Though you have no political power, though you have no strategic wealth or worth, though nothing really important or significant comes from you, I am going to choose someone from Bethlehem. It is a way of kind of God saying, when God does things, he doesn't use the best of the best, the smartest, the brilliant people, the charismatic people, the people who just have it all put together. You know what I'm talking about, okay? The people who you really envy. I had friends like that. I went to uh, college and um, I thought I was smart. I realized I was the dumbest person in the room. You know, I thought I I could actually kind of do something and I realized the people in that room were just, just fantastically gifted. Uh, you would imagine that God would use those people. But what he says is, no, I, I'm able to take the people who the world has counted as insignificant, I'm going to use them to, to turn the tables, to bring safety, to bring justice. And so he uses this kind of language of, I'm not going to choose somebody out of Jerusalem. I'm going to choose somebody out of Bethlehem. Out of you will come for me a ruler over Israel whose origins are old from ancient times. And as we look ahead to the story, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Okay? Jesus traces his roots back to David. And during a time of military census, he's forced, his parents are forced to go and, and, and uh, log themselves in into their ancestral homeland, which is this little town of Bethlehem. It's so small, there are no hotels, there's no inns, there's no place for anybody. All the family members are already filled. Jesus is born to a family who is so insignificant that he doesn't have a room or a place to stay in the most insignificant town of the country. Okay? That's like the most insignificant person has to be stuck to be born inside a manger, okay inside or where they have animals it's 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 just it's high irony from one sense, but in another sense, can you imagine that the King of kings, the most significant person in the world, as we look back, Jesus has had the most influence of all what of any person in the world, he was born in the most insignificant way, forgotten okay completely written off and that's actually not just a prophecy it's that god wouldn't do that just because he does he hates his son but he actually is, is a way of saying what does he do how does he move it's not just a, a a sign and a symbol but this is actually reality god chooses whom the world considers insignificant to do such incredible things to bring his very kingdom. And so, in this passage in book of Micah, it talks about how God will use this king, this ruler to come who, who hearkens back of old, like the kings of God, like, like David in his righteousness. And it says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty and the name of the Lord of God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. What is he saying? Right now, they're not living securely, they're under the threat. Of the superpower of the day, that's Assyrians. Assyrians were known as this brutal people. They would like um, they would gore pregnant women um, with joy. It was they they were the, the most brutal people in almost all history from the records, and they were powerful. Nobody could stand up against them. And if you were near them, in fact, the Assyrians were up north and the Egyptians were down south, and the the God had placed his people right in the center place in order for them to these superpowers to war they would have to go through Israel. It's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm Korean, and if I look at Korean history, man, it, it's, it stunk. We were in between Japan and China, and every time Japan wanted to attack China, they used Korea as their launch base. Every time China wanted to attack Japan, we were always getting crushed from both sides. That's kind of what Israel was like. They're always looking around because all these superpowers are on the move and they're around. Them. They felt so vulnerable. Well, what is he saying? This ruler's going to come... Who's going to allow them to live securely? He's saying, this guy, this ruler is going to give them peace. Even when the Assyrians invade this insignificant country, okay, when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses, guess what? Because of this ruler, wise and powerful leaders, there will be a sufficiency. There will be enough. We will raise against them seven shepherds, even eight commanders. That leaders will spring out because this one ruler will raise up other rulers and leaders who will lead them. And this one ruler will rule the land of Assyria with a sword. Assyria will come and invade, but the result won't be that Assyria takes over. It'll be that, in fact, the Israelites, this insignificant country, will rule over Assyria, the land of Nimrod with the drawn sword. Nimrod was this giant warrior. That it's the short, is in a Jews would actually rule over the tall, giant rulers, like Nimrod. He will deliver us from the Assyrians when they invade our land and march across our borders. It is this kind of picture of a turning of the tide, that the superpowers, the significant countries, would be actually overturned by an insignificant country through the most insignificant person coming from the insignificant town. And it's, it's kind of like adding and adding and adding. But when you think about this, that's what God does. He is planning big, but he works through the small. In the story of Micah, you find that God's been trying to, to woo and to turn the hearts of the people of God to him, but they won't turn. The leaders won't turn. So what does he say? I'm going to start anew. I'm going to grab my special few, okay? I'm going to work with what's called the remnant. Have you ever heard of that remnant language, remnant? Yeah? You'll see that a lot in the Old Testament, remnant. It comes over and over again, that when... People of God what, turn against him. God starts with a few. And he, does, he, he works with quality of a few, uh, the tale of the few. I, I always laugh because when I think of this, there's a church actually in New York City, and when we heard that they named themselves the Remnant, I'm, it's a great church, by the way, but the name is really offensive. Because if you're not in the Remnant, you're screwed. You're not, you're not, you, God doesn't love you, you're going to hell. Only the Remnant make it through. So they're kind of like saying, we're the Remnant. All you other churches are not. Anyway, I always laugh. Uh, that's not what they meant, but it's what it came off. Because that's what it is. God choosing the special few. Well, what does he say? Who the remnant are, what's going to happen through the remnant? The few are going to turn the tables. He says, the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of the many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for anyone to depend on them. What is he saying? Um, what looks to be insignificant, dew on the ground, is going to actually be a representation of what the people of God, the remnant, are going to be. Now, uh, sometimes I wake up and, you know, during the fall and the spring especially, and I get up and the ground is wet, my car is all foggy, right? And I'm like, oh, it's the dew. It's more of an inconvenience, right, to us. But in the agriculture and the ecology of this area, there are months where there's no rain, How do they, like, grow crops? How do they have water? In fact, it comes because the dew sustains life. Okay? It's this thing that you can't necessarily guarantee or count on. It just comes. But it's everywhere, and it's powerful. That's what he's saying. The remnant is going to be the source that actually, that you can't control but brings life. This remnant, this few, this special few is going to be the agent of God where they're going to have this kind of power, it's going to say, they're going to be amongst the nations in the midst of many peoples. They're going to be like a lion amongst the beasts of the forest, a young lion amongst the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. A powerful description of what this few is going to be. Now, when I think of a few that are really powerful, I think of, remember the Marines? The few, the proud, the Marines. Or I think of like Navy SEALs. I don't know, I, I, I can't help it, but I watch a lot of military stuff and uh, i used to be a pastor at a military church and so uh it's really interesting the kinds of training that these people go through it's crazy i would never survive um what they not only are trained to do but what they're capable of these are the 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 what was that cream of the crop in terms of the grit in terms of their physical ability in terms of their like their mental ability they, they they can do anything. They can they can save people out of nowhere. There's even TV shows that are kind of realizing how incredibly potent these Navy SEALs and these uh, Special Forces operators are. And if I were to pick a remnant, I would pick, like, the best. The best, wouldn't you? Right? Because you would need that. You would need, like, the best of them to change and to turn the tide, where it says that your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, your foes will be destroyed. We don't put... Like the mediocre, or the losers, or people like me with you know bad knee and and uh, and labral tears in my in my hips, we don't put them in the special forces. But if you look at the book of Micah, watch what God says: Who make it into the remnant? What are the remnant comprised of? Not the absolutely clean and strong and and coming from good good backgrounds and and no, He says this is what He says. I will make the lame my remnant. Okay? The people who are like, you're useless. You have no significance. You're even cursed. I will make the lame my remnant. I will make those who are driven away a strong nation. In other words, the the outcasts. They will be my remnant. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. Isn't that, it's just I, I, you know if you If you actually have gone through any kind of experience where you felt how insignificant you really are, this begins to speak to you. Now, I I grew up as one of the only Asians in every neighborhood I lived. First, it was a neighborhood of African Americans and Hispanics. I got beat up every single day. I was told how insignificant I was. And then I I moved to an area where there was a lot of Jewish people, and a lot of uh, Anglos. I was the only Asian person. I was absolutely invisible. I grew up being told by body language, by opportunities, you are insignificant. Now my parents, on the other hand, kept saying, you gotta make something of yourself. You gotta be significant, you gotta study hard, you have to get somewhere. And I realized that there's a little kind of uh, a little engine drive in me. I have to prove myself significant. Often we do that when we look at somebody and we look at them, we assess them. By their resume, where did you go to college, what kind of job do you have, how much money do you make, how, what's your family life like, what's your background, what are you, who are you, what's your, what's your worth? We assess ourselves and each other that way. As a man, I got to tell you, one of the things I really struggle with is a feeling of inadequacy. I am not enough, and I can't do what I need to do. There's not a level of significance, especially when, uh, Every man, okay, this is just, just, just me. When your wife starts to nag you, okay, trust me, you feel so small. Yeah. Well, what is he saying here? Even those who are legitimately insignificant, God doesn't look at the small and says, You're worthless, I can't do anything with you. You don't have to pick yourself up to make yourself strong and beautiful. You don't have to make yourself a special forces person with grit with training. He says, I'm going to choose a remnant that's going to turn the tables. And they're going to be the lame. They're going to be the outcasts. And that's what, Jesus, that's, what, that's what God does. Jesus comes into this world as an illegitimate son of a poor carpenter who is under the thumb and the threat of a great mad king trying to kill him. He grows up being bullied and being called Mary's son, we know who your mother is, but we don't know who your father is. He faces opposition. He faces ridicule. He faces threat his whole life. He is considered insignificant all the way through. And when he dies, okay, he he dies as one cursed on a cross. But he is the most significant person to have ever walked on this earth. And through him, The tides of all humanity turn. And what does he say? Who is going to be in his remnant? The lame, the broken, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. It is a beautiful reminder during this season. When God sees us, he doesn't assess us by how the world sees us, as significant or not. That even in our lives when we feel so small, so unable, God says, I can work through you. I am choosing the small. In fact, there's even a power in the small. We don't have to always, you know, lust after the biggest and the brightest and the most wonderful. We can see the beauty in the small. Because that's how God starts. Jesus, when he's talking about the kingdom of God, he says, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. It's like a little mustard seed, which is the smallest little seed that they knew at that time. But when God is done with it, it becomes the largest sprawling brush. There are stories all throughout Scripture how God chooses the small, the weak, to overcome the strong. David and Goliath's story is this little lad, okay, okay, who is the most insignificant in his family. He's the shepherd whom God has been training. And when every other mighty warrior is so afraid of Goliath that for a long time he would come out and say, come on, challenge me, nobody would come out as they're shaking their boots, this little boy with a little rock fells, this massive giant. It's not just a nice story that we remember. This is actually what God does. This is his M.O., he chooses the small to do great things. There is such a power in the small. It's not easy to understand that or to live in that, especially when you're facing huge challenges, especially when you see great needs. You want big. You want, you want influence. You want power, especially when you're running up against stuff that, that you don't think you can fix or you don't think you can help. It's really hard. I had an experience of this when I went to the India the first time back in 1995. And we were up in the mountains, and um, we were trying to just save one soul. <laughs> I, remember, I, I remember going and praying every single day and going out and just talking to people as best I can. And I can tell you, I got nowhere. And I would see all this brokenness. I would see all this mess. I would see kids like like three years old just begging in the street and just, just almost half starved. It would break my heart. And after, every, after about two weeks, you know, I would come home and I'd just say, God, what is this? Why'd you send me here? I can't do anything. I can't even help one person. How are we supposed to fix this? I felt like trying to put out a fire with a little cup of water. And I just felt so small in the midst of that. That was actually God's way of saying, yeah, you have to realize human ability can't change what's on the ground. But when you let God work in your small little ways, surprisingly, God can do amazing things. That's what we found in India. We go back and we go back. The small things God uses to build. We invest in people and we invest in lives. They grow stronger and they invest in other lives. And God's been doing this slowly, almost quietly, but there's been a groundswell. Just like in China, too. This is not just missions. This is, our, this is just our, our lives, even in our, in, our, in our settings. It's the little things. It's the little expressions of love. When it's done with faith, and when it's done wholeheartedly, God can do great things. This is a little quote from this book that we've been walking through as a community, ungra- Unwrapping the Greatest Gift. And this is from today's devotional pa- uh, passage. On this, on this verse, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, When we love... In little ways, the big things unexpectedly begin to happen because that's how God works, okay? In little ways, through unexpected people, the story is unfolding and unwrapping. All around you and in you, the light overtaking the dark. Our emphasis shouldn't be, Let's do these big, huge things for our namesake. We have to learn how to love, how to be true, how to be pure, how to seek justice, how to live in righteousness in the little ways. And as we do, God builds. He takes from that and he does his work. He does unexpected things through unexpected people. He gets the credit. God is always thinking big, but he's starting small. Our lives can be a reflection that we are part of the remnant. The few who know him and who love him, who trust him, and even though it doesn't seem like it, we're making a huge difference, God actually is through our lives. Through our lives. And so I want us to remember this as we're heading into this Christmas season. Um, God sent his son the most insignificant person in the insignificant town. And he raised his son. You know, think about it. 30 years. What does Jesus have to say about his life before God? All he's been is a carpenter. But right at the perfect time, God used the, the smallness of his life in such a powerful way. And he's going to do that not only with us, but with our church as well. I want mean, you to have you bow your heads with me begin to pray. And I want you to think about how do you see yourself Maybe you go to work, and, and you're not a you're not a CEO, you're not a you're not an executive. You're a middle manager. Or maybe you're even an entry level. You don't command respect. You see what you have, and you compare yourself with other people around you. Maybe they're getting into better schools, better jobs, and you feel so small. Maybe you look at your life, and you're honest, and you're like. What have I done? How great a person am I? And you can't imagine that God could be saying, I choose you. I want you to be in my special forces. I'm gonna give you an incredible purpose where you're gonna everywhere you go, you're gonna turn the tide. You're gonna bring safety and peace. Maybe you wrestle with experiences and feelings of inadequacy because you're surrounded by people who seem to be so adequate. God is saying, He will be your adequacy during this season. It's the lame and the broken that He's going to fix and heal and make healers. It's the outcasts that He's going to bring into belonging And make them the welcomers. And would you turn to him, realizing this is what Jesus went through? He knew what a rejection felt like, he knew what it felt like to be so small. He also knew his Father a boldness, a confidence, a trust to live in purity and faithfulness at the right time. God was going to take that mustard seed of his life and explode. He's going to do that in your life and in ours. That's what he does. He chooses the small. Maybe you're in a position of significance and it's so easy to look at the person around you as inadequate, insignificant, would you let God change the way you see them? Maybe they're wrestling with things. They have a, a brokenness, a lameness in their person. And you're just ready to write them off. Did you remember how God would see them? What would it mean to invest in them? See them and love them in the little ways. Build them up watch how God would use the small, the insignificant in the world's eyes. Would you partner with Him more? Think about it. Reflect on how God wants to move in your heart even as you've heard this story. The story is unfolding even now. The little waves is going to bring unexpected results. The little butterfly wing bringing tornadoes Consequence, all around. God wants to use you. Take a few moments just to reflect. Say God use me. Even in my smallness. Let's pray.